Welcome into the Camel Comp Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Budrovich. Thank you for joining us here today. And a reminder, download the Camel Call Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and check us out at GoCamels.com for all the latest episodes of the Camel Call Podcast. On this latest episode of Camel Call, we got to chat with the unofficial historian of Camel Athletics. Stan Cole is the Associate Athletics Director for Sports Info, and he's probably worked every sport here at Campbell since the early 1990s. We unpack some great stories like the buzz of media attention back in 92 during the Big South Tournament run and the addition of Campbell football from an administrative perspective. So let's dive right in and learn more about Stan Cole. You know, people were asking me, I remember, distinctly remember this graduation, people were asking me, um, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, there's two things I, def- I know I definitely don't want to do. I know I don't want to be a sports writer. I know I don't want to be a sports information director. Well, a little, you know, that didn't show very much because uh, uh, foresight, because uh, we we kind of revert to doing what we know how to do. And um, four months after graduation, I got my first job as a sports writer because a part-time uh, employee at a bookstore doesn't pay very well. And so I had to go try to make a living and um, went into print journalism for a uh, couple of years and then they called me about this job and I wasn't really interested but um, for the time uh, for Claudia and me at the time uh, it, it made some sense and we thought we were going to be here a couple three years and that's turned into some dog years so to speak um, 30 years later almost. It's fascinating when you talk about your wife Claudia the fact you guys not only grew up together essentially from early in college but also kind of grew up here on this campus and in this community literally a couple hundred yards from where we sit as, as you grew up together. Right. We, we actually met at a party on my senior year of college. She'd come back to visit some friends, and um, and that was in October 25th of 1986, and we have been together basically ever since. And, um, you know, we're both graduates. You know, our kids went to elementary school across the street. Um, We've lived in Bowie's Creek area, the Bowie's Creek area, since September of 1989, um, and um, and it's it's been home, and it is home. You know, we uh, Claudia built our dream house for us almost four years ago, and uh, you know this is where we plan on being. This is our base for the foreseeable future. For you also, not only going to Campbell, graduating from here, but now having your son, Oliver, as a student, and, and your daughter, Catherine, who was very involved in the Campbell community growing up. How, how shocking is it just to think how quickly 20, 25 years can go when all of a sudden your kids are now going through this process that you see every day with college students? Sure. I mean, 
everybody tells you that time goes a lot faster when uh, when you have kids, and I think everyone can, and, and that's just that's not a cliche, and everybody's got to understand that. And I think when you're busy with kids, it even travels even faster. Um, you know, they have their activities, sports or church or uh, scouts or whatever they do, um, uh, volunteer work and, and or, or part-time jobs. And you go from having two schedules in your family to, um, and actually mine was always, has always been my personal schedule and then my work, you know, my work schedule. And from August and through May, um, my schedule doesn't always doesn't belong to me, and um, Claudia has been the most patient, generous person um, that I can know. And uh, anybody who's in a long-term relationship who has a, a job uh, where one of the spouses or both work in, camp, in college athletics or professional athletics, they understand that um, that you have to grab your time to, your time is not always nights and weekends because we're always playing nights and weekends it seems now um, so um, it is you know the time does does go does pass quickly um, you know you can ask a number of our staffers that remember when Catherine and Oliver were born um, uh, Melinda Ashcraft who's our um, in charge of our academic services uh, was I think Oliver was three or four when she came here as volleyball coach. Wow. And we shared the same building. The office was in the same building. And he would come over there in, in the afternoons. Um, you know, sometimes when Claudia was working and I'd have him there. And, you know, she remembers him with running around. And and, uh, and now he's, uh, you know, now he's doing what the rest of them do on campus here. So it does, it goes way too quickly. And I can't believe Catherine's a... You know, I've got one more semester after this one in college before she graduates. Um, but uh, when you work in college athletics, it always feels like you, you never feel like you necessarily kind of age because everyone around you is that same 18 to 22, 23 years old, it seems like. Um, and we're almost like in this little time warp, it seems. And, um, you know, it's the people that are around you uh, on a permanent basis that um, seem to get older and uh, you know I, I know that I got more gray in my hair and my, and my joints ache a little bit at times but it feels like everybody around us is about the same age and I, I think that's what keeps you you know revitalized and you're always working with new fresh faces. Part of what makes I think your life fascinating Stan is that you have a very good work and life balance and part of that also is the fact that you do live in Keith Hills and get to see a lot of your coworkers and friends and things of that nature in a little tight-knit community across the street. Give me a sense a little bit of, of what that neighborhood's like, I guess. I mean, obviously we know beautiful golf course and, and great um, sight lines and things of that nature, but just kind of you living in that community and, and seeing Campbell people. Well, you know, we, we lived in a, a, a small development for 15 years. Uh, we lived, Claudia and I lived in on-campus, campus-owned housing for eight years first eight years here and um you know I, I think the work-life balance is not necessarily about um you know where you live but how you live it and um even when we didn't have two nickels to rub together when she left a full-time job to come back here and complete her degree and we went from two incomes to one um 
we made lifelong friends here. Um, I was 25 when I took the job. Claudio had not yet turned 24. Um, we had friends who were in, in a grad school here, who, uh, some friends who were working here, either as graduate assistants or entry-level people, um, some others who were uh, finishing school as well. And there were about there were four couples um, that got together uh, a whole lot. One was our assistant baseball coach, Roger Parham, and his uh, wife, Kelly. Uh, another was Sean Gleason, who had joined the Navy. We were in school together, joined the Navy, and came back and had a, had a year left to finish oh, wow. school. And he played baseball in that 1990 championship team. And his wife, Lisa, who graduated with me. Um, and then Robin and Elizabeth Wooten. Robin was doing his master's here, and Elizabeth had just finished her undergrad work. And, you know, none of us had any money, so we got together probably three weekends a month and cooked at each other's houses and hung out and and just visited and became really, really close. And, you know, of those those four couples, you know, I know that Roger's down in uh, Georgia coaching and teaching high school ball now, but uh, we are really close still with Sean uh, Gleason, Elizabeth Wooten is one of Claudia's best friends. Her husband passed away just a couple of days ago. I mean, a couple of years ago. And um, their oldest daughter is our goddaughter. Wow. So in a small community, you kind of make your community. And then that branches out over the years. Um, you know, there are so many people that in, in this area that made it special. Um, uh, you know, it's a little bit different now than it was 30 years ago, whereas a lot more people who worked on campus lived closer to campus. But with shared commutes and um, things like that, there's a lot of people who have more, moved more to the periphery. And there's a lot of folks that live in, in Keith Hills that commute into Raleigh or Fayetteville every day to go to work. So oh. where we're situated out there, we see a lot of cars coming and going, but we do have some very good friends out there and some people we love um, seeing and, and uh you know, so to speak, you know, talking over the over the fence post metaphorically. Um, Are you ten on? Uh, no, not quite. No, but folks like Jerry Smith and David and Cindy Averett and um, uh, uh, several others that we see uh, on a lot, you know, on a, on a regular basis out there. Um, you know, uh, but it is it is great to be able to go walk out your door, go take the dog for a long walk, go walk the loop, go down to the river, um, and um, you know, just have a place where you don't have to dodge traffic or anything like that and just to be outdoors and outside. And uh, we talk about the view that we have out our, you know, out our front door and out our back door and, and um, how fortunate we are to, to be in some place. And where we are, you know, I'm, I'm a mile and a half from work. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I've never envied anybody. Um, I did the commute thing for for nine months when we lived in Cary and I was driving into, into Durham and then down here for a couple of months. And, uh, boy, that's, I can't imagine my life being that way. It certainly feels like you're living in a car at that point. That's no. Right. And, and that's, you know, when I'm, I'm in the car for 10 minutes total <laughs> during a day and, uh, that's, that's all right with me. We save a lot of money on gas. Stan, we'll talk about sports here for a second. Of course, when you kind of really got started as the information director, it, it was sort of a, a prime era of Campbell sports, right in the late stages of the Big South before the move to the A-Sun. And you think of the baseball championships, but one that really stands out is the NCAA tournament team from the basketball side in 92. And that squad brought a lot of national attention to Bowie's Creek. And and people were kind of, I guess, flocking you and flocking the school, trying to figure out what this place was all about. That was the day um, before... 
obviously pre-internet, pre-electronic communication other than somebody having like an old Tandy TRS-80 and they'd, they'd wire their stories uh, back to the room. And uh, when, when the TV truck came, when Dick Schapp came from ABC News Tonight, they brought the satellite truck with them and, uh, you know, stuck the beam up in the air and sent it back to New York to report. And, um, you know, there were some heady times. I was, this was March of 92. I was, I had just turned 28. Um, I had been, uh, you know, a statistician and a scorekeeper for the basketball team and a couple other teams as an undergrad. And I used to joke with uh, our, our, our head coach, Billy Lee, at the time that he didn't think I was, I grew up until we made the tournament in 92. Mm-hmm. Because it was just like, um, you know, the, the Big South tournament was the first weekend of selection, the selection week. Um, and you still had the ACC and the SEC and the Big Ten tournaments and all that to keep to play. So we clinched on, on the Saturday, and it was a full eight days before the selection and then another four or five before we played that Thursday night in Greensboro. So the fact that we were a small, private, religious-oriented school kind of fit some of those cliches, the offbeat, unusual stories that the national media does pick up on. And... Um, you know, and it was we were the first Big South school to get an automatic bid for the men's basketball championship. The year before, before they, um, before uh, they fully expanded the the bracket, um, Coastal Carolina had to play Jackson State of the Southwest Athletic Conference uh, for the right to get in, and Coastal beat Jackson State. I remember being at the women's tournament that year up at Radford, watching the Coastal Carolina game in the hotel, um, and watch and pulling unbelievably for Coastal Carolina to represent the league because you got to remember um, the league was formed in 1983 and competition began began in 85 or 84-85 in many sports and men's basketball the first championship was the 85-86 season Um, we were all small schools Uh, Campbell and Charleston Southern had been division one longer than the others the others were still transitioning in and that's why there was no automatic bid until 92 because all your members had everybody that was eligible had to be finished their five-year clock to get through so uh, we had to wait for uh, Augusta and Radford and Winthrop and all those to finish their uh, to be full division one members and uh, we all kind of pulled for each other back then at the time um, I remember when I was in, when I got to work here, um, the fall of 89, Radford was the big wheel in the conference because they had two people in their sports information office, full-time people, plus a secretary. Uh, we all, everybody else was um, one person plus um, student workers. I used to t- joke and tell people I had a three-man crew here. It was me, myself, and I. <laughs> uh, but we had some good student workers um, that you had to do it. And the job was different at the time. Um, right. And, um, you know, we didn't have as many sports, and we certainly didn't have a 24-hour news cycle. You know, you didn't have to worry about generating news or, or in the, you had to beat a deadline or you had to make sure the stuff uh, got to uh, the TVs in front of their 11 o'clock newscasts on, on Monday through Fridays so they could mention your score or um, if they had highlights, you had to call them. Sometimes they had to leave before the game was over and you had to call in the final score and some other details for them something like that so it was different and um, you know the eight schools that were involved in the Big South at that time we all kind of leaned together and then there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of conference movement with Armstrong State and Columbus and Augusta eventually 
um, deciding that Division Two was be- was a better fit for them, and um, and then we we kind of transitioned and evolved and added Liberty and UNC Greensboro, and then we left to go to the, in, in '94 right. is when we left to go to the Trans America that now known as the Atlantic Sun Conference, but those those first few few years were were awesome because you know college athletics had always seemed to be the big schools, and it was almost you know. Uh, the, really the mid-major powers, the mid-major recognition that we've seen over the last you know, 15, 20 years, with, especially in men's basketball, when Gonzaga has, um, has really made, been the, the, uh, the leader in, in changing from a, a regional school to a national power. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're you know, off the boards. They're not a mid-major anymore. Um, but they came from where we were. Davidson was in the Big South Conference. In 1992, we beat Davidson, and Coach Bob McKillop, it was about his second or third year there, we beat them in the quarterfinals of the Big South Tournament to get to the NCAA Tournament. And, and of course, we know what Davidson's done in the, in the years since then with Steph Curry, and Coach McKillop is still there, and they're still mighty good, but they're now in the A-10. Uh, big TV contract, an unbelievable basketball conference. Um so it it was it was really really neat to see um, schools of our size uh, and everything tied into the automatic bids and being right. able to play in March Madness and um, and do what everybody has loved. I mean, look at UC Irvine this year. Um, look at uh, every year. There's always a small school. Liberty knocks off another uh, school. These one bid leagues where when they win, the whole league wins. And that was probably, you know, dropped into dropped into that 1992 was the fact that, you know, it, we were the big story for a week, and then all of a sudden, all our fans at, on Selection Sunday were hollering, we want Duke, we want Duke, and we were over in the corner. The staff was saying, no, we don't. <laughs> and But what did we do? We got Duke and Greensboro, and it was our 15 minutes of fame for that little bit of era uh, against Leitner, Grant Hill, Bobby Hurley, uh, you know, Coach K., um, you know, their what would turn out to be their second straight national championship in, in 1992. How fitting was it, I guess now 27 years later, to, to go through a similar route in the Big South Tournament and kind of end up in Greensboro, where I know you mentioned to me it was the exact same day that we played in the Greensboro Coliseum, and this time in the NIT, still a, a huge tournament. Right. I mean, you know, there's people um, of a certain age know that the NIT... Um, was a really, really big deal back in the day. New York, New York City was the mecca of college basketball through the 60s. And the NCAA tournament only became immensely popular in the 70s. Um, you know, John Wooden's uh, UCLA teams won 10 titles in 12 years in the 60s through um, 1975. And then when March Madness became the most popular when uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson met in 1979 in the uh, NCAA tournament. And that captured, uh, when, and, uh, that captured the imagination of the, of the country, and it's been a big, big deal ever since. I mean, certainly there were regionally, you know, we all in North Carolina, I was 10 years old when NC State uh, won the 74 championship. And uh, 
you know, North Carolina got to the 77 finals and lost to Marquette. And, and certainly Indiana's the last unbeaten team in 76. But that's, and in 78, Duke gets to the final against Kentucky. Uh, but that 79 team, when Larry Bird had unbeaten Indiana State, another mid-major, right. um, Missouri Valley Conference goes up against big brother Michigan State with Magic Johnson and Greg Kelser and all, all the uh, advantages that a, a, a national brand, is, to borrow a, a, a 2000s term, um, school, and they get there, and it's a, an incredible game, and of course Magic wins. And then Magic and Bird be, go on, become the face of the NBA in the 80s. And Magic Showtime and Bird with the Celtics, and it seems like one of those teams was hoisting the trophy almost every year for the next seven or eight years. Um, so I think just the accessibility, the television um, really made made uh, the NCAA tournament what it was. But before that, the NIT was a big, big deal. Right. Only one team went out of every conference to the NCAA tournament. It was only a Champions League. 1974, when NC State beat Maryland, um, 100, 103 to 100 in overtime game, and Maryland and NC State were both in the top five in the country. Maryland didn't go to the NCAA tournament. Those were the two best teams in the country, perhaps. And we can make an argument for UCLA, too. Let's give Bill Walton his due as well. But can you imagine now uh, that if two of the th- you know, only two of the three best teams in the country get to play in March Madness? Well, Coach Drizell at, um, at Maryland... Lots they turned down NIT bids. They said it was a losers tournament. He was so they were so frustrated mm. that they had lost because this was Maryland of Tom McMillan and Lynn Elmore and John Lucas and unbelievably great teams. Um, and uh, but the NIT historically has been an amazing tournament, one that it was even valued at one time more so than the NCAA tournament because of Madison Square Garden and New York City being the mecca of college basketball. So it's really cool to. Um, for the way that you know, since the NCAA has taken over the tournament, to you know, to have that reward, especially for um, a one bid league, as we like to, right. know, as the Big South is, um, to the NCAA tournaments for the most years, um, to have that reward for the entire season, the body of work, as coaches like to say, um, you know, your team plays well, really well, all January, February, into the first week of March, and then all of a sudden either your team's really good or the league is really good like ours was this year and you just don't quite get it finished in the tournament, it was really nice to have the historic and, um, and uh, you know, the value of the NIT because the quality of play in that, in that tournament is really high um, and the quality of, of, the, of the bracket was really high. I mean, you look at, you know, the funny thing to me I, I found surprising is that here we are playing a Southern Conference team, and the Southern Conference might be as good this year as they've been since the they turned into the ACC right. back in the in the fifties, and it might be the deepest the SoCon has ever been. And uh, UNCG was right there with Wofford and Furman and ETSU and all the other good ones up there this year. But it's kind of, it was kind of weird because to me it's like I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, here we are playing a conference game in the first round of the NIT. And uh, but that was a you know it was just kind of ironic that we did end up in the same uh, venue um, in the same city. Um, and uh, and I was genuinely pleased that. Um, it, it was great for our fans right. who turned out in droves. 
And I'm generally pleased, genuinely pleased that the Greensboro community supported UNCG because it was a really, really good crowd. You know, almost five thousand for that first round game in in the uh, in the way they've configured the Coliseum. Now, let, don't get me wrong, fifteen thousand eight hundred or however what it yeah. was for the first round of the NCAA tournaments back when the, before the Coliseum was re reconfigured and redone, um, and it was like a rock show when Duke came in there. Um, and uh, and to see you know that place filled for the number one team in the nation versus you know the number the Big South regular season champion and the and the Southern Conference runner up there was a different vibe but it was a, it was still a very the crowd was into it it was an entertaining game and um, two really really good basketball teams I know in a lot of our roles as support staff we're invested in the final score we try not to get overly invested where it becomes emotion and lives on the line and things of that nature. But it had to be kind of a rewarding moment when you saw this Campbell basketball team this year win the regular season title at home with the pageantry and kind of the emotion of that, that whole weekend. Well, you know, I always – I look at it from two different standpoints, honestly, Evan. I mean, win or lose, your job and my job, we still have a job to do. And um, we have to – you know, sometimes you don't – sit back and kind of it's hard to be in the moment because you're thinking about the next the thing you've got to do the next five or ten minutes um, selfishly as a longtime Bowie's Creek resident to have that overflow crowd here for that Radford game with the opportunity to secure a one game to secure a postseason berth versus having to win three games to secure a postseason berth um, uh, it was really exciting to me for from a community standpoint. I think the thing that has has been so satisfying to me. People talk about what's happened over the last decade with our with our athletics teams and our program and our university over the last ten, twelve, fifteen years, um, with all the buildings going up and all the growth here. But what I what I've seen how I've seen it manifest itself many times is that our football and basketball games when we bring a, a we have a venue that can bring the community together. Not just Campbell supporters, but just people who've moved into the community and who've really taken into this team that might not have, had, have had been a Campbell fan five, ten years ago, but they've, they're now season ticket holders and they're, and they're living and dying with every bounce of the ball. And when you stand on top of the press box on a, on a Saturday afternoon and you look out and, and instead of hearing crickets, you're seeing people in, in RVs and there's people with Campbell flags and tents and the, and it smells so good from everybody cooking on their on the grill. And, Absolutely. And you know that that didn't now three decades ago that wasn't there. Two decades ago it wasn't there. It was literally you know you might have a soccer game on a Saturday night and there might be a couple hundred people there and they might and it might have been a really good game, but you didn't have that the the folks from uh, from the community. And the opportunity for alumni to come back and to be here and people to be back on campus and bringing people on campus. And I think that's what hit me more than anything else that um, that Saturday was the way that it was the first day. You know, we were all, as a staff, as you know, we were all worried about having a good crowd with the students being gone for spring break. But, you know, if all the students had been here, we wouldn't have had a play. We would have had to turn away a lot of people at the door that would have been un- unhappy. Um, because they wanted to be there for that day, and of course it's you know it's Chris Clemens and Andrew Udy's and others senior day, and um, but the fact of the matter that there was a trophy to be 
to right. be dealt with that day. And that was really neat to see. Um, and uh, and just, you know, the thing, I, th- I really think the thing, again, it was that the, the fact that the community was out in droves for that game was even more uh, satisfying to me. And then the fact that you found a way to win by two and all the other good stuff was great. It was great to have a big crowd, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, golly, I hope we play well and stuff. But at that time, you know, our team had been playing pretty well for a couple of months, and you kind of expected it. And it was almost storybook for that way. The only way it could have, the story could have had an even, even better chapter is had we not run into the buzzsaw that was Gardner-Webb in March. Speaking of football for a second, you talk about that community involvement and kind of that passion that builds on the weekends hardly a decade old in terms of football as a program, just seeing it from an administrative perspective and from someone who lives right in this community, what has that culture shock of change been like when it goes from maybe a different vibe on the weekends to all of a sudden there's that football culture and expectation and people are invested in what's going on? Well, I remember when um, Stan Williamson, who was the AD at the time, was preparing the feasibility study. And I was just kind of shaking my head, thinking, "Are you kidding me? Can we really afford this? Can you know everything that goes with football? Can we staff it?" And over the years, as I've worked here, um, we've added programs where there was a need. Um, Dr. Wiggins started up the law school um, in 1977 to uh, to to his initial the initial thrust the initial um, motivation was to provide small town attorneys, um, and uh, then we added the MBA program and we added an MED in education and things of that nature. We started the first pharmacy school in thirty five years. Um, from an athletic standpoint, we built our infrastructure. Um, when we would hire someone in an entry-level position, whether it was an intern or a GA or something like that, and that person was so good, we created a position for the person. We didn't necessarily say, okay, we're going we're gonna to add, mm. we got to have this, this, and this. When Susan Berner came, you know, graduated in 91, uh, she was really sharp, and she wanted to go to graduate school, and so Tom Collins thought, okay, we can have our first graduate assistant for compliance. The AD had handled compliance up until then. And then Susan graduates, and she goes into that, and she ends up being you know, high-end academic advisor, moves on to North Carolina, all sorts of other great things that she did. Uh, I, there's a number of people we can, we, can, we can say, oh, we've got to keep this person around. And that's kind of the way things have built over the last, um, the last three decades. And I think football kind of built that way. I think we saw it. Dr. Wallace, you know, he always made no bones about how much he loved football. He played mm-hmm. football, went to East Carolina to play football, decided not to play, but it just football was a thing. But there's nothing like a college football Saturday in American sport. There's just nothing like it. There's incredible other events, but there's nothing like football Saturday when it's done right. And it doesn't matter if you've got 106,000 people wearing orange in Knoxville, Tennessee, or if you've got 100,000 fewer in Bowie's Creek, as long as the building's full and people are happy and they're watching a good competitive game. And what we quickly found out after we joined the Pioneer Football League and we got three and four years into it was that, hey, we're playing on a level playing field in our conference and we have an opportunity you know, and people are starting to enjoy coming to get it, to watch it and see that, you know, 
you don't have to be six, six foot four and two hundred twenty five pounds and run a four four forty to to play entertaining college football. People love the helmets. They love the they love the the atmosphere. They love the fact that it's a competitive game. It's a fun game to watch. And then you look at what we have. We have um, Bob Roller came in here, and the first thing he did was finish the stadium. Right. And we got them a good place to watch a game. Um, they can come get good concessions. It's you don't have to wait ninety minutes to get into or out of a parking situation. You know, like going through. It's don't don't get me wrong. Going to a game at State or Carolina is a whole lot of fun, but you've got to go through a whole lot just to get to the game and then get out from the game. The ease of coming in and getting out is is fantastic, and uh, you know there's just something about a college football game on a Saturday afternoon in October uh, that that is just great for whether you're a, a football junkie or if you're just a casual fan, whether you're really invested in a team or not. And I think we've made a whole lot of friends in or in and around our county and the surrounding counties who've who've picked up on uh, the football championship subdivision. For for you, you talk about your years of experience and kind of your co-pilots, if you will, of the Melinda Ashcrafts, the, the Wanda Watkins of the world, and, and people who have experienced a lot of what you've seen. What's that experience been like with some of those folks and, and plenty more who have, have seen Campbell grow, not only just as an institution, but from an athletic standpoint, from the late 80s, early 90s to, to what we see now today? Right. I mean, I think the funniest thing is um, that I can, uh, just a quick little uh, story about this, about the growth, is that um, a girl named Jill Mundy, who, who was a... Um, a friend of a mutual friend of Claudia and I were um, introduced us that night in October 1986. Um, I graduated in spring of 87. Jill was in the same class and she had not been back to Bowie's Creek until two summers ago uh, when she brought her daughter to softball camp here. Oh my gosh. And had, and she lives in Raleigh, Wake Forest area. You know, she'd been, she'd lived up there the entire time and, um, but had never just, found her way here and if you could have seen her eyes they were just wide she just was speechless with what was going on and that's before the building of the of the student center um you know my perspective is is pretty close to what um coach watkins is obviously coach watkins has the perspective of the growth of of women's athletics oh, absolutely. beyond belief um but you know, we were trying to play out of Carter Gym and trying to play some home games in, in Raleigh and Fayetteville back in the early '80s, and and they were they weren't home games. You can ask Jerry Smith, who was our home bas- who was our men's basketball coach. He played one game in Carter Gym in the two years he was the head coach. It's hard to play 55 out of 56 games on the road and you know keep your life together, and that's why he got out of out of coaching. Um, you know, it's. It's it's almost you know we can look at the growth in college athletics and we're just a microcosm. Um, you know we spend thirty four million dollars on our on our gym. Kentucky spends thirty four million dollars on its practice facility for men's basketball. Um, so uh, you know it's still uh, you know you just see the growth. You see the how the community has changed. The growth of our region. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly has an impact. The Raleigh growth um, from 
when my family moved to Raleigh in 1979, when I was uh, before my sophomore year of high school, I think it's just it it just kind of is, is a, a a combination of that of, of the regional growth, the the demand for quality programs, and now um, parents want to send their kids to places where there there are great facilities, a great education, great professors, and um, you know I think that our, our leadership at the top has given us what we've needed at, at each time. And um, I, I continue to see that uh, f- with Dr. Creed and his vision and, and where we're going, uh, what Dr. Wiggins did coming in in the late 60s and, uh, you know, and, and really uh, solidifying us as a four-year school and then athletically moving us into the Division One era in the, in the late 70s and on through the, the mid-80s when the women's teams all fully went up. We joined the Big South, and then Dr. Wallace um, having the vision to bring to build the building for uh, in the arena and, and add football and mm-hmm. the growth that's come through. It's just it's just kind of it's been great. It's, it's been nothing stagnant about what we've done, and um, you know it's very satisfying to see that as, as an alum and as somebody who's worked because. You know, people say, how have you stayed in this job for as long as you had? And I said, well, it's continually changing. The faces are always changing. You're always meeting new and interesting people. But the challenge of the work and what we're doing and who we're working and the level we're doing it now um, is, is gr- it's completely different than when it was when I started in 1989. What are some of the most off-the-wall or interesting questions that whether it's media or teams, representatives will, will ask you when they're preparing to, to do something with Campbell University? Well, the thing I found out that I, that I, that I find out a lot of times now is that in this day and age, um, we don't have as much time to do our job because there's fewer of us doing it in the communications field. Um, we're fortunate at Campbell to be, to be staffed um, adequately. Um, I guess that's the proper word to use. We can always use more help because then we could do more. Um, but uh, you know, the 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 things that are, that are kind of funny to me are when people want you to tell, give them just the most unique, off the wall story that you can, off the top of your head. And there have been times I've been able to share a few things, of, you know, some of the local traditions and some of the old stories uh, about this. Um, but you know, I think with you know, we had so much attention with Chris Clemens this year, sure. and I had several people call me and say, "Hey, I need an angle that no one else has told about Chris Clemens," and and you know, they called me in late February, early March for these stories, and I'm thinking to myself, "Well, if you if you had you know picked up on the story a year ago, you probably could have gotten an original angle." Um, but you know, Chris is just kind of a he's a regular college student like a yeah. lot of people who happens to be ultra talented in some things he's really close to his family he likes to play cards and go fishing and do some some of these other things that he's told everybody um but uh you know a lot of people want to you know they they jump on the the fact that uh you know we're we are in a small town in the village and you know and i like to share some of the old stories that have been told to me um but right off the top of my head, the crazy requests or anything like that. I know they asked Stan Williamson to go stand out in the what is now an intramural field and take a picture when it was when 
when we were supposed to, when we thought that might be where the football field's located, and there's a picture of him standing out there in a, in a suit and tie, uh, and the the the, uh, the headline in the Fayetteville Observer read "Field of Dreams." Well, it turns out the the football field was built across 421 on on the site where it exists now. Uh, but you know, people like like that find something different and, and unusual and um, things like that. But yeah, as far as um, usually, it's it's more people being surprised at what all we have going on here, mm-hmm. um, what all we have, um, you know, how we have people from from near and far as well and um you know i i've i've worked with our golf teams for um, a long time and and really hand in hand with them for the last 20 years and you know just look at our men's golf team for instance um we have a young the last two big south players of the year come from sweden thailand and also in our starting lineup we've got a u.s amateur qualifier from connecticut and a guy from coates Okay, which is three miles down the road. Yeah. Um, so, it's I, I tell people that the sun never sets on Camel Athletics because we have we literally have um, students, coaches, or alumni from all of the six inhabitable continents, and um, you know they just the only reason we don't have a golfer from Antarctica is they don't have a golf course there because John Crooks will go wherever it is, near or far, whether it's you know, down the street in Keith Hills to, for Braxton wins, or if it's, or not even Keith Hills, but it's on campus where Braxton grew up, or if you'll have to go to Thailand or Malaysia or Australia or, or wherever else to find somebody that will help him win a conference championship, go to regionals and go to nationals. Campbell Digital Network.